Tonight's episode is brought to you by Severn Films. Eloy de la Iglesia's Cannibal Band, one of the best video nasties of them all, on Blu-ray featuring the international release version and the extended Spanish cut, The Week of the Killer. Slipcase editions with all new extras. Also from the first time for the first time on Blu-ray, de la Iglesia's Spanish giallo, No One Heard the Scream. Plus his hard-hitting juvenile delinquent trio, El Pico 1 and 2 and Navajeros. Uh, and last but not least, Overboard! That's right, the Kurt Russell Goldie Hawn classic got a new scan and Blu-ray special edition. I actually love that film, so my voice is nothing to take seriously. It's beautiful. I'm going to interrupt the ad to say that I just got this, and it's gorgeous. Uh, it comes with the slipcase, and it is uh, definitely uh, next to Sinful Dwarf, this, one of the oddest of the uh, Severin titles in terms of the others, but that's what makes it so unique. Uh, super fun movie. Also available exclusively at www.severin-films.com for a limited time, only the three-disc uh, UHD Blu-ray CD edition of Blood for Dracula, Ludo Kier and Joe D'Alessandro, Retribution 2, Disc Edition, Diodato's uh, Riders of Atlantis, Fulci's Warriors of the Year 2072, Diamato's Endgame, and The Masturbating Gunman. September Blu-ray releases are now up for pre-order. Drop Dead Fred with Rick Mail. Oh, that brings it all back to me and my child. Oh, yeah. And Phoebe Cates. Uh, Midnight from John Russo, co-creator of Night of the Living Dead, Rare Giallo, The Fourth Victim with Carol Baker, and Regional Southern Horror a day of judgment get all your finest sleaze gore exploitation and occasionally extremely mainstream kind of sweet Kurt Russell movies on blu-ray at www.severin-films.com tonight's show is also brought to you by the Miskatonic Institute of Horror Studies Named for the fictional university and H.P. Lovecraft's literary mythos, the Miskatonic Institute of Horror Studies is an international organization that offers undergraduate-level history, theory, and production-based classes. Founded by film writer and programmer Kayla Janice in 2010, there are currently branches in London, New York, and Los Angeles, as well as online. Classes range from talks on writers such as Shirley Jackson and uh, Itogawa Rampo, which was an amazing class, by the way, to discussions on made-for-television horror films, Italian comics, the music of Bernard Herrmann. We look at films like The Thing, Candyman. We investigate industrial terror and the folklore of Walpurgis Knock and have conversations with luminaries such as Rick Baker, Andy Nyman, and Penny Slinger. We confront issues such as racism in the work of H.P. Lovecraft, positive and negative representations of non-gender conforming bodies, and how the religion of voodoo has been misrepresented. Classes run September to May with special events year-round. Find out more on our website at www.miskatonicinstitute.com. And I'm just going to give a personal plug here that Miskatonic Institute being online has been an amazing joy of my pandemic because I attended a lot of the lectures that they were doing here already in Los Angeles, like the one on um, Rampo and the Walpurgis Knock one. But I even got to sit in on one that was happening in the UK on Sean Hudson, the writer of Slugs. And I just love these lectures so much. And I love them even more online because I can do dishes and learn about Walpurgis Knock. And it's just, they're they're just a joy. Um, so this is definitely worth it. So check out Miskatonic Institute. In 1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been over 40 years and Fangoria is better than ever, each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horrors past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. 
We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say you do not want to miss a single page. Head to Fangoria.com to learn more and subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter promo code COLORS, that is C-O-L-O-R-S, to save 25% off your yearly subscription. Fangoria, it's Colors of the Dark. I am one of your hosts, Elric Kane. Join me is the ever intelligent and witty sometimes Rebecca McKenna. No, I'm not. <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> Thank you. live. Thank you, you are. sir. Yes, yes, live. I am I am just um humorous, especially when next to Jonah Ray, you know, I need him to cue me up. So yeah. Yes. Um, but Jonah, we did our live show with Jonah Ray at Midsummer Scream on Saturday. It was wild being back. Like it was I have not been to anything big like that since the start of the pandemic. So literally 18 months since I've been in a room with like a hundred other people outside of like very unnerving trips to Target. And so that was just wild to almost feel like you're back in a normal horror convention where it was booths and packed wall to wall and everybody had masks on, but it was still and seeing a lot of family um, that we have not seen for 18 months. It was kind of a wonderful, magical day. And it just made me miss the world being what it was. Yeah. And we're masks half on half off as we're talking. Uh, Jonah kept it on. So when you hear it, you know, we'll see how it all sounds when it finally does come out. But I was confused. So I was trapped somewhere between off and holding a water bottle and a microphone. I don't know what was happening, but the show was fun. The show was fun. And it was fun to talk aliens. to see who believed uh we, we get some good deep cuts throughout we got some really good deep cut alien fun, films yeah. there so that we will we will we will be dropping that uh, initially it will go to the patreon uh for a week or so maybe a little more and then it will drop it on the live feed for everyone to check out later but big thanks to those who did come big thanks to the uh the listener who made me sign uh wings hauser the carpenter on vhs for him as wings hauser picture pop up on twitter yeah that's they made you sign it as wings hauser i've signed that's more things amazing. in in character for things than i have ever as myself i don't know what for a movie about. that stars wings hauser that's yeah. amazing yeah so i don't you know so uh, more power to him but anyway that was a lot of fun why don't uh, i ever get to sign copies of slugs i feel like this is a tragedy now that you've opened the door here it comes i need get to ready. sign the cop yeah that's it's gonna happen like, now um, um, but, but technically even though that Elric and I have been at a horror convention and um, we had lunch last week and, you know, hanging out around Los Angeles, oh, um, right. technically right now, yeah, we had Chipotle. It was that's fancy right. shit. Yeah. Um, very mid-range tacos. <laughs> and uh, um, But that said, we are technically at Fantasia Film Fest right now. So we have that's been cool. um, enjoying a lot of the really good stuff at Fantasia, which we are going to get to momentarily. We're going to go through all of the things we've been watching over the last yeah. week. Um, including the one that our guests wrote for tonight um, is also at Fantasia right now. But uh, let's kick off with some of our non-Fantasia titles, and then we'll get to the good stuff. Yeah, I didn't watch. I didn't watch much actually this week, so it's only. only I actually watch mostly for Fantasia. So um, I did watch something that just bringing it up because I think you know you're gonna definitely want to dive in soon. But uh, it was very weird for me because it was like a flashback to a the bulk of my life but it's called wellington paranormal i finally started watching it right on hbo max and it, it you I just it's the weirdest thing i've ever done i mean what we do in the shadows that 
the movie, not the TV show, is based exactly where I went to college. And this is where I grew up. Half my life is spent in the streets of Wellington. And so there are, there's an entire episode. They're all about 23 minutes. It follows the two cops who are in the movie as kind of throwaway characters. They have their own show. Jermaine Clement is the director. It's a, sp- a direct spinoff, but uh, there is a whole scene. There's these buckets. It's an art installation since I was a kid in Wellington. And their buckets fill up one by one. They're colored buckets. And all you do when you're young is you stand there and wait to see when it will drop. And there's an entire plot surrounding these buckets and it has the cops waiting for this to drop. And of course, there's blood water in the in the bucket. And it was just the strangest experience watching uh, like just these places, every place I've been uh, in a TV show. So I've only watched the first two and they're, they're like 23 minutes. It's super light. It's I found the humor. I'm sure I'll grow into it even more, but it's very dry in the same way. Uh, the movie is, it might be even drier because the two people aren't necessarily like comedians the way Jermaine and Tyke and stuff are in the original cast. But if you like that world, you're going to like it. And I'm, I, I can tell I'm, it's like the perfect thing to just watch one a day in between other things because it's so short. Um, but it's basically X Files, uh, but with, uh, two not, not the smartest, uh, cops, uh, in Wellington, New Zealand. So very, very strange to, uh, for me, but it was, you know, it's awesome that it's getting play in America. I think that's super cool. Great. You'll dig I, it. You'll dig it. It's late. Somebody it's gave me a bootleg of it, like a they copy did, yeah. version years ago, and I lost it. Like they okay. handed it to me at like a convention and somehow it never made it home with me. And I was so upset. And um, so I'm excited that it is on HBO and I need to dive in that. And like Schmigadoon has been my breath of fresh air, not horror. Um, but yeah, between the two of them, I'm, I'm ready for some light, jubilant television watching. Good. Um, not on the light nor jubilant side. Actually, it was just really fucking good. And I'll do it quickly because you've already seen it. Candisha was oh, yeah. great. Well, I, was wanting, I was hoping you would see it. And also my friend Dick also listened to our episode and then he watched it and he was like blown away. So I had not watched this because I think it's got like, two and a half, maybe three stars really? on Shutter, And I was, so That's when crazy. I was scrolling through, I was like, eh, I'll get back to it. Like, it, Well, and the cover not, looks like something else. The cover it makes looks it like look something else. Yeah. Um, it is so good. So the setup of it, I'll do it very quickly because I know mm-hmm. I already covered it probably a month ago is um, these three girls who are best friends in, I believe it's set in France. It's, it's, it's definitely crazy. in kind of a lower income neighborhood um, of France. Uh, they, you know, they they love telling each other ghost stories and urban legends. And one night, one of them tells the story of Candisha, who is this spirit who is supposed, this vengeful spirit who is supposed to take revenge for any girls who have been wronged. On the way home that night, one of the girl's ex-boyfriends attacks her and assaults her. And so um, when she gets home that night, she evokes the spirit of Candisha. But she doesn't realize the rules that go along with Candisha and that Candisha is not just going to stop at killing the one guy that she keeps killing guys past that. Um, and not only that, she evolves. That was the wildest thing. Yeah, the that's the part I was trying. I'm trying to hide only because, yeah. but, but like, it's fine. I think it's fine to say evolves it because it's, it reminded me of taking the ending of taking of Deborah Logan or his house that there is a moment where you're watching something that's quiet. It's a ghost kind of vengeance thing. And then suddenly it's something crazy it's that you can't crazy. prepare for. Like and it's it such a great shock. Up yeah. in the third act. Yeah. Um, so really this cool. is is the the duo who wrote Inside. They were part of um, VHS and Livid, which still hasn't gotten a release here in the States, which is a damn shame. Wait, I don't think um, they were on any of the VHSs. I don't think. They weren't? Oh, oh, ABC's so. of Death. 
that was oh, yes. it. Yeah, yeah, they were ABCs were. of death. Thank yeah. you for correcting me. Yeah. yeah, I knew that they were on one of the anthologies around yeah. that same time. Um, but the where this really hits it right is even though that it is this vengeful ghost story, the setting that they put it in the movie, it's about this ghost, but it's really about racism misogyny, um, everything that they are kind of confronting in this neighborhood, like the racism is just hugely prevalent in the entire thing. And just the mixed races and how they work together in some instances, but there's problems that still exist. And, it and was class, a lot of class, class stuff. A lot of class stuff. And- yep. Yeah, but um, it never stops. It just feels like a. It feels like an American genre film that you'd go to the theaters to see. But instead of the generic teenagers that you always get, it's suddenly transported to an area you have never seen. So it's it's an it's like Candyman, but set over here or something. It's yeah. I think yeah. it's really it's really under. It's I hope people keep catching on to that. I think by the end of the year, that will be one of the ones people are kind of going. Oh, we caught up to it, and hopefully we can yeah. help. You know, I'm glad you dug it though. I was, I knew you would, it felt like something you would totally dig. It was a really tight screening. So that was Candisha. How come we haven't done the shutter? Yeah, it's on shutter. It's a shutter movie, I think like an Mm -hmm. actual shutter original now, but, um, how come we didn't get to see the deep house at Fantasia? I haven't. So that was one of the ones that I don't think they were doing the online screening for a couple of the screenings, I believe were only public and you would have to request it through the publicist. Got it. Got it. I'm just dying. I'm, I I don't know if I necessarily want to see it at home. I think that seems like a cool one for a theater personally, because it might be a big, you know, underwater kind of thing. But, but yes, I definitely am curious to see what they did there. And if you've never seen livid, like uh, 90% of Americans, because it's still not out here find some way to track that thing down some i don't not know why somebody hasn't put it i know somebody has got to get a good blue ray out of that because i think that is a movie whose reputation will soar because it's kind of like Uh, an a24 art house it is the the 30 second story behind livid it was a really tight a24 art house that they made i believe right after inside right after um yeah and it's it's great and um weinstein company purchased it and decided that they wanted to do an american remake but when they purchased it it was under the the ruling that it was not allowed to release in the U.S. Yeah. because they didn't want people to see the French version and then not come to see the American version. And so they the wanted the so they they completely <laughs> never made did it. like a full embargo on yeah. releasing the French version here. And then God knows where the rights are now. Yeah, um, they never made yeah, they never made the remake. They never which made is a shame. the remake so, either. And it would be. I can see why they would do that. Like it seems like it, it could be ripe for the right person to make something yep. fun out of it. But you know. But anyway, that's a fun one, and so it's fun. They, they've had a couple misses as a duo, but they're still young, and it's cool um, to see them just plugging away, yeah. uh, making some good stuff. So that's Candisha. Now on one? Shutter, I got I got two more. I'll do really quick. Um, yeah, so that. also on Shutter, um, I've been editing the film mm-hmm. that I shot a couple of weeks ago, and in the editing room, I have been sitting under this giant poster for this film called The Conspiracy. Like literally, mm-hmm. where I sit mm-hmm. in the edit, it's just above my head, and it's I a keep really looking striking at it. Cover, uh, striking. It image. is. It's yeah. like a, a guy with a bull mask on, and I'd been sitting under it and didn't really pay attention. And then while I was watching Candisha, it comes up underneath. Maybe we also recommend and there's that fucking movie and i was like yeah. okay you know what it's fate i'm gonna watch it um and i really enjoyed this this mm. is relatively new to shutter i think it's maybe from a couple of years ago but it's just become um a shutter release title where you can watch did it you know there. it's the same director as the one you just flashback yeah, which i did not know until so i watched flashback like a month ago while yeah. i was actually shooting and then um yeah i once i started researching the conspiracy i was like holy shit it's the same dude chris mc 
McBride. I think I might be saying his name wrong um, or possibly giving him the wrong name. But yes, it is the same um, director. So the setup of this, I, I almost turned it off because I am weird about found footage movies, mm-hmm. but I something was really tantalizing. So I kept going. It is two guys who decide to make a documentary about this guy that you kind of think is nuts from the beginning who believes in all these conspiracy theories. And he has all of these kind of conspiracy theories about cults and Illuminati-esque organizations that are controlling everything and the rich feeding off the poor and all of these wild conspiracy theories. And they're making a documentary about him. And you get the idea that neither of these two guys are really buying into anything. He's more just an interesting character. Until the day he completely disappears and they can't find him and then weird shit starts happening. And it gets really interesting. I will say it does not get horror in the term that like we tend to think like the horror genre until the third act and then it gets really tense. Um, But across the board, this was a pretty fun ride and one that I wasn't expecting. You can tell that it's low budget, but there's a lot of intention behind this and it's a story and a setup and a concept that I haven't seen done before. I'm a sucker for any of these weird like rabbit hole movies. And this was definitely one of them where like, you know, I always gauge like if I pause the movie to run, get a soda, it's good. And this was one where I was pausing because I was like, I can't miss any of this because I'm going to miss some conspiracy fact. Um, so yeah, I thought it was a documentary was, in my head, like, a, or a fomentary, you know, I thought it's it was a fomentary like yeah. because they keep it going the first. So the whole thing, and that's why I called it found footage. It is a mockumentary, I'll call yeah. it, because the mockumentary, it begins as a documentary about this guy um, that disappears midway. And then it shifts into a documentary about finding him Mm. and one of the theories that he believed in and what happened to him. And I will say one of the really cool things is it doesn't relent even the title, the credits and everything. It never stops being a documentary. Mm. Um, like it never reveals itself as a film. So it's, it's kind of cool in like the ambition and how much they put into it. So that was the conspiracy currently on shutter. Um, I also went back and watched the 1955. You know, I've been like burning my way through all the oh, yeah. mass stuff. I'm going to follow so, you after this. I'm going to watch them in order, though, <laughs> just because I, I, you've told me about them all out of order. So I'll just go back. I to have. Stuff. I watched them completely. I started with um, Quatermass in the Pit, and then I did Quatermass 2. And then I just went back and did... Um, it started with the BBC serial, which I have not seen yet. That's my next conquest. But this is the first of the film series, which is um, the Quatermass Experiment, a.k.a. the Creeping Terror from 1955. This was wonderful. I had such a good time with this. Mm. It's a a similar concept to Sputnik, which I talked about last year, where a spaceship goes up. It's the launch of the, the British space program. It goes up in the air with a whole bunch of astronauts in it. It crashes back down to Earth way over its target. It's late. They don't know what happened. It comes back down to Earth and all the astronauts are gone except for one guy who seems pretty fucked up in the head. And then trying to, it's literally the setup to Sputnik. Um, But where it goes, the effects in this, like it gets the monster effects. It gets a lot of body transformation and things like that. It's body horror, 1955 body horror. The effects are great. Like I was just really loving it. And um, you can tell how kind of extreme it was for 1955 because it was one of the films to receive what at the time they called um, the X certificate. 
And um, that they actually dropped the E in the title because they were so proud of that. So it's mm. like they just use the X in experiment instead of the E. So yeah, this one, it's not as crazy as um, Greater Mass in the Pit, which is just a fucking bonkers movie. Just literally like what the fuck is happening the whole time. Um, very watchable. But this was better than part two. And I really like part two across the board. I love Quatermass. I want to do a full reboot of Quatermass. He needs to come to our contemporary times. I know there was a good TV series. People, a lot of people talk about. I don't think it's the earliest one. I think there's one after the there's first one, movies, maybe in the seventies. There's one from the seventies that, that ran some people for really I like, think so. six episodes that I have also been trying to hunt down now. Yeah. Um, a lot of these are not really well released in the states so um break no i know but i know they're foundational to like mm-hmm. like i think i even said on our live show like i know people like joe dante have been talking about those films for years as like the big ones for them so I, i've always meant to check them out but i think you've given me the motivation so i'm gonna do they're it. great okay so shall we fantasia, head back yeah. to fantasia yeah okay so at fantasia what did you watch this week yeah, I got four, and and so I'll, I'll I'll let's I'll kick it off with the weirdest one. Um, the first two I'm man, yeah, they're interesting, and then the last two I really really like. So, uh, from Belgium, I'm I'm trying to note where these things came from. Uh, from Belgium, Hotel Poseidon, which has one of the, it's a film from yeah from Belgium, um, in Dutch I think though. Uh, it has one of the coolest opening shots where it takes it's a long take that goes across. Uh, what's it called? Is it the, the Rue Goldberg where somebody drops the that's a machine like yeah, mouse yeah. trap right so it feels yeah. like that basically it opens with a shot that just keeps going around objects in a room following little things and you're not sure where it's really going but by the end it's to reveal the title hotel poseidon using objects in the frame so hotel is on the wall but there's a poseidon trident inside a, an aquarium glass and it's it's just really clever it takes like five minutes before it reveals the title and you're like okay that's pretty cool um, it's a very interesting movie, but it, it's very, a little derivative. I mean, it's not derivative of much, except for there's a filmmaker uh, who I love called Roy Anderson. He made a film called Songs from the Second Floor. Very crazy. These art house films from like the last decade that where characters will have like um, almost like white face paint or powder and they all look kind of dead and it's all somnambulistic and, the, you know, very almost Buster Keaton-y humor. So he's, this guy has actually taken that exact style um, in this run down broken down hotel that looks uninhabitable and kind of scary uh mixed with aronofsky's mother it's almost like it's all these long takes and it's like the whole universe is colliding on this place and it's just this loser guy who owns this hotel and he uh you know people are coming on to him think weird things are happening and slowly you know his aunt dies in the hotel and then he has friends of his having to get rid of the body for him and it's just it's got this very sad weird dark humor vibe that had I not seen these other movies, I probably would have really been wowed by how original it feels, but it was hard for me because I'd been such a fan of this other director to see somebody kind of doing a similar thing with the, uh, even just that style maybe threw me a little bit, but it, it's horror, but it's more art. I'd say it's more like seeing a foreign art film that goes really dark in the last little bit, but it's, it's not like anything I've outside of that style. It's just a very weird tone. Um, you know, I, I couldn't even put really tell you what it's about, except that it's all set in this hotel. They never leave the hotel and it's getting crazier and crazier. And it's not set in the real world. It's okay. the hotel is like, like literally there's <clears throat> moss on the floor and fires happening here and there. And people, you know, it's, it's like a, it feels pretty like a debauchery hotel or something. It's fascinating, but hard to put a pin on. And, 
I doubt many people will ever get to see this unless it's through, you know, kind of festivals. So, um, but I think some people, if you had never seen any of the things I just mentioned, you might be blown away by it because it's so different. Um, but that's Hotel Poseidon. It's like the least obviously horror of the ones I saw, mm-hmm. but I thought it was interesting. Didn't love it, but you know. Okay. Festivals are great like that because you get to see all kinds of things. Well, I'm going to go with one that I absolutely loved. And this is King Knight, mm. which is the new Ricky Bates film. Mm, mm. And I tend to love Ricky Bates because his stuff is so irreverent. Like I find myself laughing at just these things yeah. that are just so wrong to laugh at the entire time. Um, but he just presents them in such a way that it's just so irreverent and fun. And um, that's exactly what this is. This stars Matthew Gray Goobler as a um, witch, or I guess he's a warlock, but he is a witch um, who leads a coven with his life partner and lives this very kind of pure energy, you know, positivity driven life in Los Angeles. And um, one day he gets an email that it is time to go home for his high school reunion. And suddenly it is revealed to his life partner and members of the coven that he was not always kind of a social outcast, you know, alternative type person that he used to be a really popular jock. Hmm. And then it goes on this kind of story of self-discovery where he heads to his high school reunion. His mother is played by Barbara Crampton, which is hilarious. Um, The whole movie, it's silly. But at the same time, like, and it never takes itself seriously, but at the same time, there's moments where it does take itself seriously because there is this really interesting message and self-analysis going into it. It is somehow silly yet sentimental and somehow really important, even though that it's not taking itself silly or seriously. There is so much going on in this. And there were moments where I was just like, oh, my God, like, it's just so like, you know, winking at the audience. And then other times where it is so just like, you know, self-realizations and things mm. like that. His, all his um, stuff is, really works like that. It can be something silly one second and the same quite deep and truly yeah. dark humor at times. I haven't seen this one, but I uh, the one before it, Tone Def's got some funny stuff, but the one right mm-hmm. before it, Trash Fire, I think it's called. Trash Fire. I really so just think it's hilarious. It's this so dark, one though. feels a lot smaller than we saw with like Suburban Gothic or Trash yeah. Fire. Um, it definitely feels smaller, but there's something really quaint about that mm. where the majority of the movie, it's just like the five or six coven members and mm. that's it. Um, and then not until he starts traveling out into the world does it get a little bit bigger in the third act, but that's said the interdynamics of the coven were so fascinating to me i really didn't want to leave them mm. um plus matthew greg googler is just electric to watch on screen mm. in this like he just he embraces this part beautifully so okay. that cool. is king knight i really enjoyed this one Always again it feels king. it feels wrong you're gonna laugh at things that you're just like oh my god this is so wrong but um very irreverent but there was yeah it's very ricky bates all right, I'll jump to from Alberta, Canada. Um, I like the setting and I like the um, the cast of this one a lot, even though the film's a little, it's a little on the nose. Ultimately, it's a little like exactly what you think something's going to be. It's called Don't Say Its Name. Um, it's by director Ruben Martel. What's cool about it, it's a, it's a mining, a mining town is coming to a native reservation. So it's, the cool thing is that it's all on a native reservation and mm-hmm. the bulk of the class are native. Uh, and this is in Canada, right? So it's still native America, but um, they basically, because there are some people who have been per- given permission to come and they're not native stuff. Americans, they're native Canadians. I'm just going to, I'm just going to, it's still America, North America. It's North America. 
Oh yeah, I guess technically. Yeah, no, okay. It no, it's North America. Okay. It's, all, it's all America. That's that's why I half said it. I was about to back. Okay. Up. I was like, I'm it's not good. sure on that terminology, but we're going yeah, with it. It's all we're America. Um, as far as, you know, as far as I know, um, feel, feel free to correct me. Anyway. Uh, anyway, uh, but it's, but it's interesting because the setting, you know, I've seen lots of kind of Wendigo myths and I've seen lots of, this one's a little different. It's basically people are starting to be killed by like an invisible presence from the sky. It starts like you hear a noise, you look up and then something comes down and brutally murders, uh, you know, a handful of people. And you start to realize it's the spirit uh, of somebody who was uh, killed on that land, who was against the mining. She, she was so against the mining, some somebody or something has helped bring her spirit back to seek vengeance on these people. And it's got some cool parts uh, with that idea, but it also has just certain moments where you're watching it and you kind of, sometimes I felt a little step ahead of of it. And it, But I do think it's it's entertaining and it's always fun to see you know, different voices and different people represented in a horror film. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's got a couple parts where you see maybe the, with the low budget, you see the thing a little too clearly at times. But mm-hmm. uh, up until then, it's always intriguing because you don't know what you're watching exactly what kind of film it is. But it's a very simple one, a vengeance film. But, you know, again, it's like the kind of thing you, you catch at a festival and it's, uh, they can be nice surprises. Uh, and there's always some, something worth watching there. So that one's called Don't Say Its Name. I think this is maybe the first time it's screened. It's very early in this film's run. Well, continuing with long titles, I saw The Last Thing Mary Saw. Mm. And this one, um, it's got a very A24 feel to it where Mm -hmm. it in no way feels like a horror film until the world is exploding right in the final moments. So just be prepared for that going in. Um, The setup is lesbianism in a super religious community in the 1800s. And so it feels almost kind of like the setup that we're given in like the 1666 Fear Street, um, where it is this like uber, uber, like super religious community. In this case, it's a family that's headed up by this like super creepy matriarch. And they're very highly, highly religious. And the young girl who's a teenager, Mary, begins having a relationship with the serving girl and one of their servants. And um, most of the movie is kind of the relationship, is seeing how they function, how they hide it, how their day-to-day lives are going. And then when the family members start becoming suspicious, then it turns into almost like a punishment movie. And then it blows up in the third act. Um, This, it was beautifully shot. Like the movie is super dark. But they're using mostly practicals. So it's a lot of like candlelight and, and like really period, using, like, like, you yeah, can't, no period artificial lighting. To the time period. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's very practical lighting to the time period. So it's like a lot of scenes lit by candlelight, which are just beautiful or lit by moonlight or, or, you know, really kind of just daylight streaming in through windows. Um, it does have a very kind of stark, um, bare quality to it because, you know, it's this very kind of puritanical household. They don't have a lot of like decorations on the wall. So the set deck is really stark as well. Um, and the environment and kind of the family dynamics are by far the most interesting thing because the family itself is a little weird and off and figuring out how um, everything functions. For me, this needed more story to it. Like there was not much story. It was two girls hook up, they're punished, and then something happens mm. um, spread out over 90 minutes time. 
But that said, where it heads in that final third act was really interesting and fascinating and not at all where I was expecting it to go. Um, you will not uh, kind of, you know, be able to predict where this head, it, it definitely gets crazy. Um, and so that said, even though the, the first two acts were very slow, very deliberately paced, it was definitely slow burn and not altogether horror when it, it was worth it to get to the third act. Like it was definitely worth kind of being patient with it um, and watching just kind of a lot of breathy scenes of people looking at each other to get to where it's going to explode in the third act. Um, so at the end of the day, I did enjoy this one. And that is the last thing Mary saw. All right. Uh, my next one's the next two I really love. Uh, and they're both super indie, which is always awesome to celebrate. Catskill Mountains, New York. Uh, this movie, I believe, is a Yellow Veil one that's going to shutter uh, pretty soon. Uh, Wait, what it was is, this called? This one's called, oh, it's from Catskill Mountains is what I was saying. It's called Hellbender. Oh, um, okay. I did have yeah, this on I, my list. I hadn't I said the title yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was yeah. just telling you where it's from. But um, this is, so I had mentioned, I only just kind of caught up with them uh, last year, The Dig Two Graves, which was uh, the super indie uh, film made by a family of uh, the father, the the mom, and the daughter as the, uh, as the kind of vengeful ghost. And it was a really mm-hmm. great indie. It really surprised me. And it was just made by this family and they had apparently made a couple others. And I was like, okay, I, I'm interested. It's more, much more than a gimmick. And then this is their follow up to that. And this movie just completely rocks. Like it just moves really fast. You jump right into it. It jumps into like a folk horror thing at the start where these witches are killing someone who's being hung. And then something really weird happens to the body. And you're like, okay, whoa, what am I watching here? And then it just hard cuts to this like girl punk band with just the mom and the daughter are, are you know, in this really good music too. That is also made by the, the family through the soundtrack and it's basically the story of this their daughter who's zelda who's um i think 15 or 16 and she helps direct she helps write these scripts you know she's a big creative part of it uh she has been on this um isolated land with her mom for her whole life she's never stepped foot off but her mom goes into town and comes back and she's been told that she has a rare illness and can't be around other people because she'd be susceptible i mean this might have been made during the pandemic um it wouldn't surprise me. It makes sense because it's all this family. Anyway, she starts to realize uh, through a, a random interaction with other people that maybe she isn't sick. Maybe her mom's just been keeping her there. And she starts to figure out that her mom is a very powerful witch and there's something in her that might be even more powerful and dark. And mm-hmm. there's a reason the mom's been keeping her away from other people. And it's really simple, but man, and you know, it's just got one of those movies that moves. It, the performances are great. Uh, you know, it's, it's funny, it's fun. And it's got, it's not a comedy by any means, but it's got this really, um, there's a thing about when a, an indie's handmade, but done so well that you're excited to make movies yourself. Uh, it's got, it's got that written all over it. And you just, everything is done by these, this family, the sound design, the editing, the, performances and not in a way that's in a that could sound like a bad thing this is a this is just you know to me exciting so this one luckily will be available to people pretty soon so i'm glad to put it on people's radar i think you'll totally dig it um and zelda adams i mean my guess is she's gonna have some sort of crazy career because if she's already making these features with her parents and that and she's like co-cinematographer and it means she's getting mad skills before even leaving the home the nest Mm -hmm. you know so uh, I'm excited to see what happens there. So that's Hellbender. Well, the the last thing that I saw is uh, what we are going to be talking about with the writers tonight, which okay. is uh, Nighthouse. So what else did you see? 
Yeah, I'll do one more because we don't have to go too deep in the night. Um, yeah, yeah the, the other one I really like. So I've liked all this guy's films. Um, his name's Perry Blackshear. And a few years ago, he made a bit of a splash with a very small, small film. But, you know, people kind of caught up to it called They Look Like People. Mm-hmm. And it's a really just kind of an unnerving film. It was actually one of the films that, like, inspired me to write the thing that, I'm, you know, hoping to make soon be, in terms of just like, oh, yeah, you can do it for very little as long as you write to that, right? As long as you write something in that ballpark. Um, and then his next follow up to that was something called called um i just started last year uh what was it called siren and it was mm-hmm. it was kind of a I, I liked it i didn't quite like it as much as the first one and then this new one uh which might again might have been made during the pandemic pandemic same team a lot of the same actors called when i consume you this is a real return to form to me um this feels like early fessenden like in a big way it's new oh, york wow. city movie yeah it has that feeling it's it's about a girl it opens with this girl you know who looks like she's been beat up trying to get home you don't know what's happened there's some mysterious hooded figure following her uh her brother her and her brother are super close and you kind of get an insight that they are all each other have um the and it's you start to realize i don't want to ruin what happens pretty early but it, it you realize that there's a dark entity whether it's a real stalker or a supernatural presence that is hunting the girl and is about to turn its sights on the brother and to face it he's gonna have to uh, radically changed because he's kind of a slacker, not not the sharpest tool type of character, gives up on things very easily, and she has to uh, get in his ear to get him back. I'm, I'm, I'm admitting a pretty massive thing that happens in the first few minutes on purpose, but it, it's it's a really fucked up, quite dark. the The presence that's coming is really psychological. It's almost like you're you're the part of you that calls yourself a loser in your ear or calls you a you're not up. It's almost like that manifest coming for you and how can you really fight that in a physical term um it's a really interesting movie i've got to say and i thought the performances were great uh i am going to try to track the lead actor of this down after watching that i was like okay this guy's great i want to see him uh in something else so i i definitely recommend this one for people when i consume you i i just because it's such, so thin on story i don't want to ruin it too much because mm-hmm. it's it's much more about the atmosphere and performances so um but i do love a good new york city at night kind of movie so Fantastic. What else That's are you good. looking forward to seeing there? Well, I don't know what I mean. These, these are all the ones I had scheduled so far. So I'm, it'll, it'll depend what else pops up before the end. So, so I noticed Krat is still there. I really want to see that because it is about the same kind of mythology concept that we encountered in November, mm-hmm. um, where it's like the Krat character where you're making kind of demons that have to serve you out of physical objects. Um, but it's a comedy. It's a horror comedy. And I was kind of like, that one really intrigued me. Um, There was a documentary straight to VHS I was interested in. Oh, yeah. I wanted to see that too. Yeah. Yeah. um, All the Moons, I think, just became available recently. Um, So I'm excited for that one. And, uh, of course, Woods Dark, um, which is the new documentary on folk horror from Kayla and Severin Films. I'm excited to see that one as well. Yeah, yeah. We both are excited to see that. And we'll we'll hopefully be talking to them about it in September or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So Fantasia is online. So anybody can get in. And um, some of these movies have already passed because some of them are only available for limited time. But there are still plenty more available. So definitely check out Fantasia. It has been a treat to be able to watch um, all of this stuff in my living room when usually we'd have to go to Montreal to see it. I kind of miss the parties. I miss the the British pub that we always go to. But yeah, um, there is something pleasant about watching it in my own living room. 
But before we meet our guests, whose film is also at Fantasia right now, um, let's talk about our night flight pick. So we have a night flight pick for this week. And our night flight pick for the week is Santa Sangre from 1989. So Night Flight Plus is a streaming channel available on Roku, Apple TV, Amazon Fire TV, and online. The channel is the only place to watch original episodes of the iconic 80s cult series Night Flight, which I grew up with, as well as an eclectic collection of cult films, music documentaries, midnight movies, concerts, and other. Um, Their cult collection includes titles from Arrow, Blue Underground, Severin, Something Weird, Night Flight, plus is a total treasure chest of weird oddities and gems. Subscriptions are $4.99 a month or $39.99 a year. For a limited time, Colors of the Dark listeners can save $10 on an annual membership with the promo code COLORS, one word, C-O-L-O-R-S. So that will take it down to just $2.50 a month, which is so worth it to see Santa Sangri. Elric, you want to give us a log line for never, this movie? Never. I will never try. But it is, it's truly one of my favorite films. I think it made my foreign films of the 80s but very high up there because it's just it's like nothing i'm a huge jodorowsky fan but even so i think this is his best movie uh narrative movie it's it's a it's horror it's carnival it's you know a little boy falling in love you know a magician boy in the in the carnival falling in love with the mute girl who walks you know the tightrope yeah, yeah the trapeze and then of course while he watches his father who's the uh the knife thrower cut the arms off his mother uh, in one of the most grotesque moments i've ever seen in a film but also just everything's beautiful because everyone's they, there's a tattooed woman the, the the dad's having an affair with there's there's just all this stuff in the opening and that's just the opening that builds up the context and then it becomes very much a mixture of like psycho um the relationship you know between say the mother and son uh, mixed with a film about you know what ultimately is basically a serial killer of mm-hmm. sorts um based on a real story that somebody Jodorowsky met who was a who had you know ki- killed a lot of people and had buried these women in bridal gowns in the backyard in uh in wow. Mexico yeah, it's actually I had true no that part's idea. true yeah um, that is wild. So this is the movie that when my students always ask, like, what's like the weird thing? What is like the weird thing that I've never seen before that I can watch? I'm always inclined to Santa Sangri. Go for it. I mean, you can follow it up with Holy Mountain, but man, this is like his opus. If you've um, never seen someone take off their own ear and eat it in front of you just for shock value, then you, you go. You have never lived before. And right now you can see this amazing Jodorowsky classic of 1989, which I promise you, you will never see anything else like this. Um, you can watch it for two fifty a month by going to Night Flight. And trust me, they have so much stuff on here. Just like so many titles from Severin, Blue Underground, Arrow, The Works. Um, so you go there right now. You subscribe. You type in code COLORS, C-O-L-O-R-S. And you get a giant discount on it. So definitely check out Night Flight um, TV show I grew up with. And I'm so excited to see them have this fantastic app now that is just this conglomeration of all these amazing cult movies. Okay. So, um, yeah, with that, let's meet Ben Collins and Luke Petrowski, writers of the Fantasia title Night House, as well as the new Hellraiser film. Yeah.
Okay, welcome back to the show. We are very excited to uh, speak to a couple friends and screenwriters who we uh, talked to on the old show many moons ago, maybe a couple, maybe three or four years ago, for Christ's sake. Uh, very welcome uh, to Luke Petrowski and Ben Collins. How you guys? Hello. Hi. How's it going, guys? It's great Hi. to see you again. <laughs> yeah. It- a lot has happened. I had brunch <laughs> with you guys somewhere in like God. Los Feliz, like literally like a month before the pandemic, but it feels yeah. like like years ago. <laughs> yeah, that was literally as soon as you said the good nice to see you, I was like, you were one of the people, one of the faces in the before time. Right? Like, the, it was the before like, it was time. Right yeah. There. We we had literally. omelets. It was lovely. <laughs> and then, and uh, then this. Yep. Yep. I, I remember, I feel like I saw Luke in the weekend or something. Right. <laughs> Yeah, last time I saw you. Yeah, you're in this watching a movie in my living room. Yeah, 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 we were we were in the same bubble. That's true. We were watching Hong Kong. You never, you never stopped seeing it. You're the two. You never stopped seeing each other the whole time. I know. I think there was a period where everyone didn't leave the house, right? But I mean, like within outside of your family, it's like once you were able to be social. Yeah, but it took. We we both have children that are similar ages, (laughs) and we were no. It's just because you're best friends and you love each other so much. Well, I think it's mostly the Hong Kong (laughs) cinema now that has drawn me to Luke's expertise at crazy Hong Kong films. But uh, but no, uh, many moods ago we were talking about Super Dark Times. Uh, I'm still telling people about that movie. Still a very big fan of that film. Um, Thank you for. Keeping that torch lit. Keeping for us. the torch going where we can. But uh, you know, uh, many a couple of years ago, I remember reading the Nighthouse, and I I can't really remember it that well, like compared now having seen the film. But uh, I want to go back to like what was the like where did that story come from? Because this is an original screenplay. Uh, it's in theaters now. You know, at the time of this coming out. But where mm-hmm. did that idea come from? Let's assume that some of our listeners have not seen it yet. Can we yeah. get oh, no, a I, log yeah. line, maybe? Yeah, and we're not going to go spoilery. Yeah, it's too we won't. No, we, we. I think we're good at talking about it without spoiling at this point. I think so. What's the log line? Do you want to give a log line? I can't. I'm trying to remember what the what the IMDb thing says, but it's like a a, a, a recent widow is left alone in the house her husband built for her and uh, starts to discover her husband's disturbing secrets. A widow begins to uncover her recently deceased husband's disturbing secrets. Well done. Yeah. Wait, who's the top of my head? Who's the logline member of the group? There's always one. Anytime I talk to duos, it's always like I do the loglines. So much, honestly. It's on. It's like whoever loses a coin toss. It's like I swear to God. It's because it's so. It always comes right at the last second. Mm -hmm. We don't really. We never think in those terms. And so it's like, oh, we're about to go out for a submission in like 30 minutes. Do you guys have a logline or anything? And it's like, if Luke's with his kids, then I'm going to do it. If I'm, you know, like in the movie, you know, like watching a movie or something and he'll do it. And that's, and it just becomes what it is. It's typically both of us. It's typically like, I don't want to fucking do it, Ben. You, oh, I, can I swear? <laughs> oh, God, <Sorry>. fuck yes. <laughs> okay. I've discovered that that and like the brief synopsis, they're surprisingly painful for screenwriters because you've spent like six months and 90 pages on this oh. thing. And then somebody's like, can you summarize in three sentences? And it's like, oh, God, yeah. no. So I'll have him yeah. do it, and then you know, like he'll send it in, and then I'll read it. And be like, uh, let me get in there and mess with it a little. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. It's all, it ultimately, you know, it works out. So back to Elric's original question. Well, yeah, no, actually, I'm already changing it. Uh, fuck that question. <laughs> <laughs> Friends here, uh, no, super dark times. I remember with the kind of the opening image for you guys was like you know a dream that I guess started a dream with Ben with uh, somebody on the samurai mm-hmm. sword and things like that what was what was that first kind of image or idea because you're going from a group film you know of teenagers to a I know the script was even older maybe in terms of central character but a, a solitary figure 
in a lot of ways a very isolated character uh and i'm very you know instilled in grief yeah it's it's really so many pieces i mean that's what's kind of fun about this Mm -hmm. one is it is the frankenstein of all our discarded children from Mm. pitches for different franchises for original scripts um you know pieces of different movies that we liked and video games and books um i know one of the very earliest seeds for me was Stephen King's Bag of Bones. I know that sort of the obvious comp would be Lisu's story, which which wasn't really necessarily on our minds at the time. But there's a moment in early on in Bag of Bones, which deals with a husband who's lost his wife. And I this is when the book first came out, and I haven't read it since. And so I was, you know, a lot, much younger living at my parents' house. But there's a moment in the book where it describes him like reaching down to pick something up, and he just has this feeling that his dead wife is going to be under the bed. Mm. Uh, I, that that's the image. And, and I was really taken by it because it was the first time I had encountered the idea of the ghost of a loved one being something that felt frightening, like mm-hmm. that you wouldn't want to see. Um, and that idea really stuck with me. And and then another sort of weird piece that I always held on to was the video game Silent Hill 2, which has the basic setup of uh, a man, again, getting a, a letter from his dead wife that just says, meet me in Silent Hill. Mm-hmm. And so he goes to Silent Hill to, you know, follow up on that. And it's like, that's a, such an intriguing and juicy and haunting kernel of an idea. And so I know that I always carried that stuff. But but Ben, like it's, it's interesting because because when you say what what was the original, like the original thing, and like you said, it was all these discarded pitch pieces, because what I remember is that it was like, you know, late summer 2014, and we had been, you know, struggling, trying to like, you know, make a career as like writers in development. And, and, you know, we'd pitched all these things, you know, like, oh, what's your take on this franchise, and then not gotten the job, and then sort of like, you know, had these excess stories, and we were trying to write things and stuff. And I, I just remember us being so frustrated that we just said, like, let's just we got to write a new original thing. Now, I don't remember why we picked like why the you know can you remember that luke was like the first like moment of us going like i mean other than thinking what would be something else that was inexpensive that we thought could be cool yeah i mean we know? always we always saw you always saw the story of we wrote this movie uh stephanie um that that eventually came out but the conceit of that movie was a lot of the suspense is just it's a little girl alone in the house and and ben you you've talked about how Mm-hmm. We were coming into this stuff with the like the found footage wave and and always asking ourselves, well, we don't want to do found footage necessarily because everybody else is going to, but how else do you make a movie that's going to be like cheap and easy? And so you had the yeah. idea of like little girl alone in the house, which is like, yeah. great. It's very expensive to shoot a movie when your protagonist is a little girl alone in the house. I was going to say, that's an <laughs> so issue right hours. there because yeah. studio teachers and you only get them for like six hours a day. That's but like a whole like thing. You're exchanging, but, but all the stuff that you're gaining in exchange, it's like, it's like finding ways that like you're, it's like, it's, it's yes, it's still. I, I think there was a little yeah. bit of, can we do that again? With an adult woman and not a little child. <laughs> yeah, for exactly that reason, it's like, it's like that's, it made a lot of sense, but it turned out to be way bigger than we thought. It's like, oh, the logic was right, but the application could be better. And so instead of like, yeah, like the age being a thing, it was like, well, what's the context we meet a character in? This is what it was. It's like, how do we meet someone that's going to make their day-to-day life immediately compelling? And it came back to some old ideas that we had had that led back to you know, some of these pitches and stuff about a widow, <laughs> a recent widow. And I mean, ir- ironically enough, what, what, one of the big pieces was like, we pitched back when it was at Dimension, we pitched on Hellraiser. And yep. and we were really into the idea of, you know, the Julia character and Hellraiser, who in many ways is kind of like 
it is her story in a way and not not necessarily Kirsty's story as much like the more it, the characters wrestling with more interesting things is julia right and so we kind of were thinking you know tr- trying to explain to dimension like oh, we want to do like a black swan like really dreamy and elegant and beautiful but fucked up version of this grieving widow who is going to do anything to get her husband back but he was involved in mysterious occult things and they were like yeah, Bob's not going to like that. Like, <laughs> we're not going to do that. <laughs> so we, but we loved the idea of talking about grief and, you know, finding occult stuff potentially that, you know, gnarly shit that your husband was involved with. And, you know, the idea of, you know, grief being this haunted thing. And so we kind of took the kernel of some of that along with Amityville pitches and, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, thriller ideas that we had and just kind of put, put it all together in an attempt to just try and scare one another again. I mean, yeah. I mean, what, yeah, I mean, one of the scares was like, we actually came from a pitch that we'd done on the movie that David Bruckner was later attached to separate from us. That's that right. Neither of us ended up making. And then we wrote the scare that we had pitched into this script before he was attached. And then he ended up directing. It's one of the big ones in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Which we won't so, show what that is. Well, <laughs> this is this it's is like when I think about it, it's like, yeah, it's such a funny it's such a funny thing where you see the fossil record of the way ideas just sort of exist. And so it, yeah, it kind of coalesced. Well that, that's what thing. I think it's is it I think it's Neil Gaiman who said that like, you know, like so much of writing is just confluence. And you have all these disparate ideas. And so for any writers out there, like, you know, those old pieces that you know, they're they they can always come back, you know, they can always reconfigure. And, and so no writing is wasted, even mm-hmm. if something doesn't get made or you don't you know, necessarily finish it. But like anytime you're, you're writing, it's like you're, you're farming out those little jewels and, and you never know how they're going to reconfigure uh, later on down the line. Yeah, this is one so- of the biggest things that I tell my students is to never throw anything away. Like it doesn't mm-hmm. matter if you've been writing this great Frankenstein movie and then boom, somebody comes out with the quintessential Frankenstein movie. Something in that later, you're going to use somewhere else in a completely different thing. Like it's it's <laughs> good ideas are good ideas, and they usually are kernels that get flushed into other things. Well, and that's the and that's what that's really what happened here is we were so frustrated and we we didn't have any work. And I mean, I was working in casting like freelance in L.A. Luke was had stopped being a teacher but was still living in Atlanta, and we just had a couple weeks where nothing was happening, and we were like, well, let's just do this, and we started to kind of connect the dots in our minds, you know, of, well, like, take the character from the Hellraiser pitch. Now, what if she was in, and you start to, like, kind of fit it together and find these ideas. And, and, and also writing of- writing a, you know, it ended up casting much younger uh, and, and perfectly, I may add, with Rebecca Hall. <laughs> but, you know, we, we did write for a middle-aged woman intentionally because you always hear, like, well, there's no parts for middle-aged women. So you're like, well, what if we made, like, a one-woman show that was just a showcase for the acting abilities of somebody that they say there are no parts for? And then, of course, you get into development, and it's like, well, can she be, you know, 35 instead of 45, 55? <laughs> and then, you know, that's a fine well, trade-off, though. better than 27, which is, you know, probably yeah. where the lowest bar was, you know, pulled to. <laughs> but it was like, yeah, so, I mean, we... We really, I mean, it was kind of going back to the way we wrote the first script we ever wrote together, where we talked about it a lot. Well, in that case, we didn't. But in this case, we talked about it a lot, but we sort of just started sending pages back and forth. And so I was working a day job. He was, you know, sort of not as much, but he's got kids and a family. Like, we would just send stuff back and forth. And I think we had a draft in like three weeks, three weeks, four weeks, maybe. I don't even know. That was so It was ago. very fast. It was very fast because I remember we were like halfway or over halfway through when Bruckner was leaving to go back to Atlanta because he was out here for like Friday the 13th meetings or something. <laughs> and I had him over and told him like, we're, we're almost done with the script. We want you to direct it. 
it's going to be cheap. It's going to be awesome. And we kind of, I gave him a log line. God knows what I said. And he was like, sounds amazing. Send it to me as soon as you can. And we did. And he never read it. And it took several years for him to say, Hey, didn't you see me a script like four years ago or something after he'd made the ritual? And you know, people were like, what's the next Bruckner movie? And so it was like, a, and the again, stars kind of aligned. Kind of yes. For those, who, those listening who haven't caught onto that part, David Bruckner is directing the Hellraiser yes. film that you guys have written. So, yeah, I mean, I felt like, I, I think when I saw it with you the other week, Luke, I felt like at about 40 minutes, if she had just found the box at that point, I would have been like, okay, greatest Hellraiser movie ever anyway. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so either way that set up there, but I think it is interesting casting, I mean, she is, you know, next to Pig, Nick Cage and Pig, this is my favorite role of the year. Like, I think she just wow. is incredible. And they're both similar. They're both about grief, but both have a lot of humor. And Rebecca Hall's, the humor in this film, and we start with a good crowd, and they were laughing at all the right moments because yeah. her oh, behavior yeah. is not, you know, what we what we expect from sitcoms. It's, <laughs> you know, but to that's, deal with it. her behavior in this seemed more real to me than yeah. most grief films because she's not just, like, moping Thank through you. the house crying. She is... There, there's a cynicalness to it. There is very mm-hmm. much like there's a brilliant scene where she's talking to a parent of one of her students <laughs> and just the frankness of, yeah, he killed himself. Yeah. And just when you see her do Spoiler. that, it punches. That's uh, that's like the opening of the movie. Uh, it's um, in the trailer. It's in the trailer. <laughs> yeah. Trailer shit's fair game. Yeah. And actually, it, we just called her a widow in the log line. I think we're clear. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, seeing her literally just kind of like put her fingers in her mouth and pretend to fire a gun, you know, four days after <laughs> this has happened, it's like the cynicalness of it, um, the fact that it's the grief is coming through in this kind of theatrical performance. It's so much more effective and honestly so much more kind of shocking than if she was like sobbing about it. Like we've seen that this kind of like hardened, you know, you. I don't even know how to handle it. It it was shocking, um, but almost seemed more real. Plus we've seen her yeah. in Christine. So we know what she's capable of doing to herself. So we have to be very, <laughs> very careful with Rebecca Hall and movies now. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, no, it's just no, it's, such a funny it's, thing. It's such a funny thing that she had just done that. And I wonder if that, like, for, like, the 17 people who saw Christine, did they, were they extra suspenseful? I don't know. You know, like, I mean, it's one of my favorite movies of the past few it, years. No, but, it's, like, it's incredible. Yeah. I mean, very tragic yeah, it, news story. But. It is very funny. You know, we were sort of talking before uh, we, we got onto the show about, you know, all the pandemic situation. And, and I think what's really kind of funny about the timing of the movie coming out now, which is obviously it was written first draft in 2014 and went through all this development process and premiered at Sundance, like right before the whole world shut down for a long time. But I think now really more than ever, we're all Beth, like we're all grieving. And so we all have, so I think when you could see in the theater, or when you and I were, were watching that the preview screening and everybody's laughing, it's like, there's a catharsis for everybody because we are all feeling just as, uh, you know, out of sorts as she is, we're all s- cynical and we're all sort of wanting to just say what we want to say, and we don't have the patience for other people and, and yeah. the bullshit that and we're not we used maybe to being around people. I, I, oh, I, I've now. lost a step in public. I've lost I, I, when I'm around a bunch of people as I'm just starting to have to do now for my work. I'm finding I'm just a little off from what I was, and it's and I feel like that's a big part of the story. It feels like how do you how do you go back to work after you've lived through something yeah. like that? How do you how do you uh, talk to your neighbor? Uh, about you know inconsequential yeah. things when you've all been through something. Well, yeah, it's like it's like I mean, like grief is like an alternate dimension that you walk into. I mean, it really you know, and that's and that's the kind of thing that we were you know imagining would be true at the time. But it is it is really crazy because I mean, Luke, back in the day, I believe we'd said to each other many times this was our our most humorless script. 
We used that, to say that, that was the intention when we, when we started writing. It was like let's just write something that's like a like a seventies horror movie where there's like there's no jokes. Let's not do any jokes. No, don't be cute. And then you know we can't yeah, help ourselves. We but write it's behavior. It just, the the humor is coming mostly behaviorally, even though it's on the one hundred percent. Still, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but, but the, the jokes the in the theater. Like, I think that's that's one thing. Without telling where the story goes, the story does shift dramatically, and the room gets so quiet when things start to turn into a different. It becomes a very. I, I feel like people because they don't know where it's going to go, and I don't mm-hmm. think anyone could really. You know, it's not the kind of story <laughs> where you can see it ahead of time. I think it gets so quiet because people don't know where you're about to take them, and they've just grown to care. They've just grown to understand her and care about her, and now now they're fucked because they're on this on this journey. I thought that was, it was just an, an, it was a good test crowd in that way, in a lot of ways. And that was an interesting battle because, uh, you know, any, the, the note of likability mm. is oh, such man. a kind of exasperating right. note. And, mm-hmm. and we definitely had to, you know, fend off a couple of, you know, the, it, most, most everybody was, it, when we developed this with several different groups of people over the years and stuff. And so, and most people were pretty good about it. And our, our central team always got it of our producer, Keith Levine and, and director, David mm-hmm. Bruckner, but you'd occasionally get creeping in those notes of, you know, is, is Beth likable? And it's like, trust me, they're going to like her because she can say the things that they want to say. Yeah. They all want to have, you know, especially, especially if you've been through like grief unlocks that for you. like yeah. that. Yeah. Because, because you're, you're holding, I mean like, like being that raw emotionally, you're holding back people so many times that like watching a character like do that and still sort of keep it going. Like, I don't know. I, th- I do think it's, it's now, especially, I mean, I, I feel really emotionally compelled by her when I watch it now, which is, it's different from when, even when we filmed it, you know, like we're saying, but also people so- don't understand uh, mo- how movies work, which is you could put anyone on screen and you will start, the audience will start to care if that's the only person who's on screen. Right. It doesn't mean it's that easy to write a character, but the movies just work that it's, way. We can watch a it's awful the man person. Bites, and, man yeah. bites dog parable of yeah, it, he's horrible, but yeah. we'll, we'll find him funny if he is who we are presented with. But, but um, the world, the world you're watching is defined by the longer time you watch it yeah. so like man bites dog is a great example because you're so horrified but at the beginning but the more time you spend with them the more their world is normal to you yep. so you're kind of like i don't know this guy's a good friend because those guys are assholes <laughs> he's charming he's, yeah. Yeah. You know? um, and it's like you you didn't think you were going to compromise morally at the start of that movie but you got there you totally and for, for, yeah. for horror you know i think and, and i think what and david bruckner talks about this a little bit but i think what to me, what is kind of successful about the movie or what we tried to do anyway, is that, you know, you sort of vacillate between being Beth and observing Beth. And sometimes you are her and you're in the moment you're feeling what she's feeling. And then sometimes it kind of feels like you're watching a friend spiral out of control and they're going places and you can't help them. Mm-hmm. And then that's where characters like, uh, you know, Sarah, Sarah Goldberg's character, uh, Claire in the movie and uh, the neighbor played by Vondi Curtis Hall, Mel, and, you know, that there are people in her life that kind of then so, in, in scenes when Beth is with somebody else, you kind of embody the the other characters and you kind of have to watch her flail. And you can you can hopefully empathize with with multiple perspectives on the themes. So I'm we, gonna... but we never break perspective, though, ahead, which is sorry. interesting. I don't know. Yeah, that's a good observation. Sorry. Um, so I'm going to go bigger picture here. I want to yeah. know about your guys' writing process because I write with somebody else most of the time. Even just the script that I just finished for Universal, I was co-writing. And so 
it's always interesting to find how different couples kind of structure themselves. Like, are you the type of co-writers who sit in the same room where one's standing over the other one's shoulder? That's definitely, what, definitely not that I, one. I would <laughs> kill somebody in that capacity. Um, so are you guys the type where, and this is um, legit what I find to be the most common, I'm on my side of the city and you're on your side and we're passing drafts back and forth. Um, that, I think that's right. I mean, and for the longest mm-hmm. time, you know, until... I guess it's not recently anymore, but for when when we wrote this script, it was, uh, yeah. you stay on your coast, I'll stay on my coast. Because <laughs> I was in Georgia and he was in, yeah. in California. And so we would, it was interesting with the time difference too, and also the different hours that we kept. So it'd be like, sometimes I'd be going to bed, here, I'll send this to you. And like, oh, Ben's waking up and he can, you know, we can kind of swap out that way. But um, we do a lot of sharing outlines in Google Docs. Mm-hmm. We do a lot of talking on the phone. And then we do a lot of like, go do a pass, go do a pass. Trade and, it's, and, it, and it's kind of every, ver- I think it's like a bit of, a, of like being aware of who's got the heat at the moment too. You know, because sometimes it's like somebody needs to take a run and you need to like lean back on it. And sometimes it's like you feel like you've got something and you go run forward on it and being able to be flexible because we've probably written every possible way you could write a movie at this point other than you know, in the like, same room which i guess we should yes never try i don't think i could some do that point. <laughs> um. no I, I think it would be fun for comedy i think yeah. that's the fun i think it would be really fun for horror being able to scare each other like in your own space like because when i get his pages i get to you know turn the lights on put music on and actually like be a viewer to his work and then be a real responder and then also be what everyone wants when they're, you know, responding to something actually like be a participant. That's probably the biggest thing is, is having yeah. a, what Stephen King calls the first reader, uh, yeah. you know, like who, who are you writing that you kind of are imagining is going to be the first person who's going to read this thing. Yeah. And it's nice to have a partner who is like, well, they have to read this fucking thing. <laughs> you're not, it's not yeah. a favor that you're asking a friend to do. You're not making your spouse to read. It's like, you're in this too, buddy. You got to fucking read this. <laughs> Which honestly, I think, I think that, that it's funny you say it because I think that was probably how it, we actually became partners in that way because we were reading stuff for each other long before we were ever mm. writing because you were writing stuff. I was writing stuff. I was writing stuff with Kevin. And it was like we would share stuff with each other. And I think the trust you gain from being able to like comprehend and respond in like an appropriate way to somebody else's work is probably a really good foundation of a writing relationship, I would think. I've never thought about that before, but... How do you determine who does the vomit drop? Not that it's vomit, but who takes that first initial like shooting in the dark, I'm just going to get it on the page. It depends. It it used to be more where Ben would take that first volley and then I would come in and sort of refine and and be inspired. Um, But that that was before we outlined a lot. Right. Once more studio work led to you have to, when you have have pitches, you have to do outlines. You have to. And I was so frustrated by that process at first of like, I can't break the story until I'm in it. So what you're asking me to do. Oh, I can't. It's (laughs) like, you gotta, you gotta do all the work. I'm like, why? (laughs) I don't, I, I know. And Dave likes to paint himself into a corner when he writes scripts and then figure out how to get back out of it. Like he just sits and Mm. just goes. Mm -hmm. And I'm very much like, I want to see the end of the road before I even start typing the first line of dialogue. Like I want to know exactly. I I want to know the ending. I agree with you there. I want to know where we're going. And then I kind of want to find a path. And it was, it was very hard at first when it was like, you have to come in and you have to 
create the whole story yep. without doing the act of creation. You just have to tell me everything that's going to happen. You don't get to to find it though. Yeah, and that yeah. was that was difficult, and it still sometimes is difficult. And we will end up with outlines that read more like screenplays because it's like, well, in this yeah. scene, and then the character says, and it'll go into dialogue and whole exchanges. Because to me, the scene is this is it's this exchange. It's these yeah. two characters talking and these these lines and these specific turns of phrase. And I need to know what that turn of phrase is. And then I'll know what the scene is about. So you kind it's a weird, uh, you know, balancing act. Which, I mean, I, Luke, here's a question. Can you even remember, did we outline Nighthouse? I honestly don't remember. I don't think we did. Uh, I don't think so, no. I mean, honestly, that might be one of the only things, like, in our, you know, like, since I moved to L.A. that we wrote without an outline, really. Because it is, at this point, that's almost, like, most of the work. Like I said, you get the job by having the story figured out. And then... Whoever does the vomit draft, you're still aware of everything that's going into it because you have it. But we, yeah, with something like this, we genuinely passed it back and forth and discussed it. But it was like, yeah, which is much more unusual. That's really uncommon. Mm-hmm. But maybe we should do it more. I mean, this one turned out. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> Just like jump in. What about um, maybe some of the frustrations when you are writers? Uh, translation, right? Every one of your scripts that have been made so far, somebody else has ultimately had to adapt that to the screen. I'm not going to go yeah. back and, and uh, litigate what didn't work out <laughs> the others. Instead, I'm going to look at the positive and go, which elements mm-hmm. of the script um, most came through on, on Nighthouse? And, and were there other things that, in watching the final film, that you're actually, you might be surprised that either wasn't in script or things, elements that did get lost. Cause I do, I, mean, I think that's important yeah. for people at home to understand. It's like screenplays are, you know, one version of a film and then it gets, it's, it's very hard to be a, a screenwriter, not a director. And we've talked about this a lot lately, but it, it does feel like you are having to like, you're, you're puppeting someone else, you know, to, to do your art. Like you, you do your art, but it's a game of telephone. If like, well, here's all these things I'm trying to express. And you just got to fucking hope that, the producer and the director and the actor, like that all gets conveyed on down the line so that when it finally shows up on screen, it's, you know, is this anything you know, like what I wanted to accomplish? It's, and it's sometimes heartbreaking. I mean, but to David Bruckner's enormous credit, he really works hard to always understand the intention. And sometimes he challenges the intention or he has intentions of his own, but he is not a director that's just like, well, takes it away and does his own thing. And he's right. He's like, what were you guys trying to accomplish? And sometimes it can be exhausting because we'll really drill down of like, what were you trying to do here? Like, I don't know, man. Like I was feeling it out. This is, this is poetry. Like <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm throwing out there. I don't have especially, it. Especially with this movie. I mean, this was, we joked at times that like, this was like, I mean, this was such a, a, a complicated one to put under the microscope because so much of it did flow with a kind of like dreamy poetic logic. And so, I mean, it needed to work as much as possible. I mean, that was a really, you know, tough thing to do with him. But yeah, I think most and we of want it metaphors, you know, we, you we know, want each other. metaphors and multiple reads on things. We're very comfortable with that. And then when you get to, you know, Dave's got to communicate to actors and it's like, well, I got to tell the actors something that they're playing. So you guys can't be saying that this means three different things because the actor is going to ultimately choose to play one. They can't play three different things. Yeah. Cut to David um, Lynch directing, uh, make it dreamier. He <laughs> <laughs> uses that word more air. Well, I mean, that's uh, the funny thing. when you're writing, you can just in your mind, you're like, yeah, it's going to be like the Lynch thing. It'll just work. Right. And then it's like, yeah, when it's down to somebody actually having to direct actors on set and you're like, oh yeah, it doesn't just get that, it's not that simple. That's what a director has to do. And that's what Dave's really good at, I think with us especially, is filtering in and being a part of that conversation creatively and not assuming that something doesn't work just because it's hard for him. I think I think it's, a, it's right. 
or because they don't understand it. It's like, I don't get this. Can you explain this to me? And then, you know, sometimes it'll be like, yeah, of course I can explain that to you. And sometimes it's like, uh, uh (laughs) (laughs) uh-oh, you got me. Um, But But in that that token, so yeah, when it's on screen though, were there things in there that you're like, oh, he brings, he highlighted something almost. Well, I mean, the the hugest thing, and I don't want to get into too many spoilers, but if you've seen the trailer there, there is sort of a, a, personification of a supernatural uh, entity um, and was very run of the mill and mundane uh, on the page. And it was definitely, we talked a lot about this is a movie about being haunted almost by the absence of something, by the Mm -hmm. absence of a person. And it was David Bruckner and Patrick Horvath uh, who he worked with, uh, who's also a director and illustrator and brilliant guy who helped visualize uh, what Dave calls the haunts in the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, and so some of the coolest imagery we can't take credit for, (laughs) but, but the, 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 the dialogue and the character arcs and the story structure, you know, we were there for all of that, but there are some, there's some incredible visual stuff, um, that was really brought to it. Um, But that's, it's, it's, that's also a good lesson though, in this kind of thing that like watching the movie now, like sometimes I do that with, especially like, like now that we've had a couple movies made where you're like you see what a director does and you're like, well, how would I have even described that? Mm-hmm. And I don't even know that it would have been possible for us to, I mean, conceiving of it is one thing, but then also like conceiving of it in a way that you're conveying it on the page that makes someone see what ends up in the movie. I think it's enough to at times make the most compelling image that you can and hope that what you're doing is inspiring a director to either like find the best way to capture that image or be inspired to find a new image because that is outside of your control. And so I do think like, like in this movie, you see a good balance of the dialogue and the stuff that, you know, that is very close to the script that we can be really proud of, like the translation of it. And also knowing that the sort of atmosphere of the movie and the, the tone of it and stuff inspired the images that came through the collaboration with the director. And, and I also think it's, it's very easy for us to be like, hey, one woman show, it's woman in a house. And we're just typing this stuff yeah. and, and thinking yeah. that, yeah, it's compelling that she just like goes down to the basement and gets another bottle of whiskey. And that, you know, Dave <laughs> and Rebecca, like they have to shoot all that. He's got to make that actually, actually compelling. And that's, you know, I don't, you know, he's, he's a, he's a brilliant guy and a wonderful person. So yeah, he's, and he, yes, a kick-ass movie and he's going to make uh, a, another kick-ass movie very soon. Yeah. Uh-oh, so, you left the door wide open. So on I was getting ready to say, you shouldn't have, you so shouldn't have guys, can we talk uh, about that? We, okay, so we're, we're not supposed to talk about. Can we say these, the name? Yeah. So yeah. So y'all are right in the new Hellraiser. Oh, yeah, so right. what hap- what can you tell us? Anything? I think we've been told that we can say that it's happening and it's going to be kick-ass. <laughs> <laughs> you, can, you can't even confirm the leaks that are online. You have to, you have to like go that way. I don't think we can. That's fine. Because yeah, I, don't, yeah. I don't think, I mean, it's, it, I mean, I can say that the online stuff has been like a flurry of absolutely random nonsense for the most part. So like- right. You know, it, it, it's not even worth trying to talk about it, but I can say, that, you know, the fact that it is the the same core team from the Nighthouse that it was, it's us and David Bruckner and Keith Levine and David Goyer coming over pretty much like seamlessly from that with some, you know, like, I mean, we were posting the movie while, I mean, Dave, Dave was finishing post on the on Nighthouse while Luke and I were starting working on the script for Hellraiser. Mm-hmm. So it's been almost so wait, like did a that film get thing. it though? Like, was it, was it watching Nighthouse that secured? 
got the pitch. I think it helped. I think, you know, I think, and I think doing, you know, working with David Goyer and we've enjoyed working with him and he enjoyed working with us. And I think, you know, Hey, it worked out last time. So when, when, you know, he's the guy that says, Hey, these are the guys, you know, and he can, you know, walk on the pitch with us and, you know, you've written Batman begins and dark city and, you know, like you can, you can, (laughs) you can just kind of say, these are the guys. (laughs) I mean, it felt, yeah, that felt really cool. Did now you can tell me this though because you didn't tell us. Did anything we're talking about Frankensteining? Did anything from that years prior pitch of yours? Did any elements of that make it into no. your work? Well, no. not no. But but what I what I can say and and this is is that is that because this has been reported is that like I mean we found out when everyone else did when I think it was Hollywood Reporter or Deadline or something announced that that David Goyer was like writing and producing the Hellraiser movie. So what what that was announced and then announced our involvement was that he had written a treatment and that we were hired to write the screenplay. That's all true. So the only common elements I would say are the elements that we were pleasantly surprised to find out were very similar between his treatment and our treatment from basically a decade ago, which was, I mean, look, we would have thrown out everything with the chance to, you know, any of our old stuff was, you know, off the table if it meant getting this opportunity, but it was a really nice kind of omen for the whole thing to be like, Oh, this guy with this career and this whole perspective kind of landed on some of the same ideas that we had when we were no, you know, nobody's just struggling to, you know, get any job, you know, but wanting Hellraiser. And so it made it feel like we were stepping into the right atmosphere. And I, I, I can say it's, yeah, it's proven to be a, a, yeah. good, a good fit. And I'll say, you know, yeah. there's, there's so many elements that make up what Hellraiser is. And I know that, you know, in, in the past has sort of been, you know, we 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 pitched a dimension, and then you know, it's it's kind of floated across the table again, and then a couple of times. <laughs> I, but I, will I say, pitched I pitched on a TV show that was not with the people who have the TV show now. It right. went through three different production companies. Dave and I uh-huh. pitched on it probably six years ago. We pitched on one, I, one, and one, 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 one came across our table, and we were just like. That doesn't sound like Hellraiser to me, and I no, won't, I won't yes. like. I think that's the probably because um, we had just finished the comic books, and that got us yeah. the pitch, and so then um, from there, and they called us back in three times. We were like oh, all excited because if a company yeah, calls you back God. in three times and you keep pitching to the the next level of execs, we were like, we're gonna fucking nail this. And mm-hmm. then that company discovered. I don't think they even had the rights. I don't know. It was when, when I, I, the, the yeah. anecdote that I that I will tell. I won't name any names, but when. when and at one point, somebody <laughs> referred to the author, like you know, and then the author was like, "Do you mean Clive Barker? Like you, you don't yeah. say the author, like it's it's Clive. Like yeah. if you don't know that, yeah. then we can't do this with Talk you because you yeah, if, you, if you don't imagine that you're on a first name basis with the man already, yeah. then you're not a fan. You're, I'm not going to trust you. Well, we always and talked so about like what was it? It was it's it's sex, death, and puzzles. And yeah. if you don't have all three of those things, it's you're missing something, right? If it's yeah. just if it's just death and puzzles, it's a saw movie. If it's just sex and death, it's like a billion other horror movies. Mm-hmm. If it's just puzzles yeah. and sex. I don't know what that is, but it sounds kind of cool. But <laughs> yeah. you, you kind of need all three. I'm excited to yeah. see this, and I know you guys can't reveal anything now, but I, someday I want to write a book where I literally hunt all of the different pieces of the Hellraiser mythos oh and how the franchise has divided been divided up. Because I know when we were doing the comic, it was very specific what parts of the story, like the actual text story we were allowed to use mm. versus the actual like mythology that had been expanded in some of the movies versus the first movie, which was a completely different set of rights. Um, wow. And so it was like, 
and I know that even just like as it got divided into television, book, and film, which are all three different um, yep. rights holders, that you know where the mythos fell was was wildly varied. <laughs> so and, and video games exactly, apparently, yeah. and now the video game. Oh yeah, video <laughs> game. Dead by dawn. <laughs> yeah, I saw Just Till Dawn came out tomorrow, yesterday with the announcement. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a real fascinating, um, saga yeah, that that entire yeah. franchise has had. I, well, I won't say, yeah. I won't say much and, and I, you know, but I, I mean, there's, there's going to be Cenobites, right? Like we can say that there yeah. are Cenobites. I would assume that, that part's yeah. a given. Yeah. I just, th- just to be able to, Jeez, what a fucking dream. Yeah, I let it slip. <laughs> uh, what a dream to be able to contribute to the yeah. pantheon of Cenobites. Like that's fucking exciting. Right. Um, and the Justin Timberlake news is already out there, so you guys can let that out. That, that he's playing <laughs> CDs. Pinhead, Timberlake yeah. Pinhead, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. He could probably actually yeah, do it. Yeah, pretty yeah, good. Yeah. Now, wait. Uh, just, just, did you go back and rewatch all of the films, or did you yeah. like... This yeah. is exactly oh, yeah. what I mean. We, we not, okay. We're not letting them go without answering, which is their favorite of which the non-number one. Okay, because see, one. I have a soft oh, spot three. for Detter, and nobody... Oh. I like Detter. I think there was something really oh my, fascinating okay. there. I know. I know. It wasn't there's moments. There's it's moments. Got moments. I love Which that moment. Is that Scott Derrickson's or a different one? It's Inferno. not. Scott Derrickson's came Inferno's, out. Inferno's, yeah, yeah it's Derrickson's. Uh, Detter is written by somebody. Is David that... Boreans in it? Or somebody no. like that? The guy from Nightbreed? Mm-mm. No, no but the, the, the guy that looks like David Briannis is in Inferno. Ray, Ray Sheffer, Are we Ray in Sheffer. the internet? Are we at an internet cafe with Lance Henriksen? What is happening right now? Please. <laughs> no, Detter is the one. Detter was not originally a Hellraiser script, but right. uh, Weinstein had it and then kind of mud, muddily put Pinhead in it. But it's yeah. about um, the cult of teens who discover that they can kill themselves and bring themselves back wow. from the dead. And it mm-hmm. starts to anger. Things start following them back. Um, and I, th- I remember just being like, that's such a cool concept. And then Pinhead. It is up. a cool concept. Um, yeah. See, so, yeah. No, I literally remember thinking it's just a cool concept and then not remembering where the concept. They've got the subway train, like the headquarters on the yeah. subway car. Yep. Yeah. It's like a club on the subway car. In where she's going. Do you, do you guys have a scene with Pinhead in the opposite room pacing, waiting for the person <laughs> next door to open the box? Because if you don't, you aren't doing it well. That's, I mean, that, it's so funny. Dave Dave would bring that scene up. I mean, years before That's this was ever even discussed. That was always a funny thing that he would talk about. That was yeah. like one of our, yeah. No, impatient yeah. pinhead. Pinhead impatient. Oh, yeah. man. No, I mean, I mean, we I, honestly, like, like we, I, I mean, it, I probably rewatched at least the first five, I don't know, every other year for the past. You know, it's just, it's. It, I like the movies, yeah. you know, and I like watching them and thinking about what I always wanted them to be and what we, you know, Luke and I would talk about like what they could be and you sort of give up on that hope. But like, yeah, so we, we've been watching them, I think pretty consistently since we got engaged with the project. And um, mm-hmm. So what was yeah, the I fave part that. three? I mean, I want to say, I say part three because I think the, like right up into the club. Oh, is is two off almost, the table? Like, Cause two is oh, the no. obvious answer. Well, I'd say I mean, two yeah, and one I mean, are in like, like an extended see, story. Yeah. One and two. Can't well, I'm letting it. you talk about two, but I figure you're going to talk about two, but three was like, like, 45 minutes of three or the first hour, like right before the whole pinhead of the club turning everyone into Sinbites. I love it. I love it. It's fun. It's funny. It's like got this cool kind of like, you know, these two girls solving a mystery kind of vibe and all like the, you know, JD Monroe is the sleazy uh, club guy. I just, he you know, was I really hot when I was a kid. Monroe. 
Yeah, JP he is pretty hot. Yeah, he's, he's like really hot. I mean, he's like he's a dick in the movie, but he was really hot yeah. when I was a kid. And being Don't like a kid, he's, wa- he is oh, so sweaty. I, I watched that movie a lot. Yeah, he's sweaty. <laughs> he, I mean, um, he sex really good cool boots. Ways where he like you know like really slowly <laughs> throws his arms out. Ah, <laughs> it is a hell of an <laughs> orgasm, guys. Oh, that's right. <laughs> oh man, I mean, it's like the Shawshank <laughs> Redemption shot of orgasm. It is. Yeah, he, he's he's the and, the Andy Dufresne move. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so that, I mean that was the one that I. Well, I am I I am a big. I mean, I, I like Anthony Hickox. I mean, I, I'm a huge Waxwork fan. Like yeah. growing up, like Waxwork was was huge for me. And I just recently saw Warlock two, and it was like Warlock two is fucking great. Warlock's like, great. Across yeah, the and, 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 and Sundowner is really cool. That the new vampire western one. It's oh really? really? I think it just came out this oh. week finally on Blu-ray. We talked about it earlier in the year because it's 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 got Bruce Campbell as Van Helsing. It's a fun, oh. wacky movie he oh, made. Okay. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, he's he's. It's just the wrong energy for Hellraiser, yeah. but you know, it's it's very like Sam, you know, the Raimi school, you know, of all this like really energetic and almost like Warner Brothers cartoon kind of like quality to it, which is a fun movie. But yeah, it's it's you know, three is it's it's tricky because it doesn't it doesn't quite feel like Hellraiser in the same way. But no. <laughs> I always like I I think it is for oh my gosh I can't even remember the one where it starts out in I want to say like the sixteenth. And then it goes to space, mm-hmm. um, but it so starts it's, it's with Adam Scott. So yeah, I Adam love. First, I think feature role. I love the Adam Scott scenes because it really felt like it was really one yeah. of the first ones that infused the S and M quality of it, and it was mm-hmm. setting it in this very kind of you know uh, just kind of very time that seemed I, fitted for it. Was, it feels like it the comics, this, like, like that. That's yeah. one the one that feels the most like what yeah. the comics mm-hmm. were doing, which was really expanding I the world just, and like kind of short stories and how this all has a history that kind of fits together. Yeah, the uh, movie I, is weirdly If, if you told me there was a really yeah. good script at some point for that movie, I would I, totally believe I, it. I, I just is, watched yeah. it like like two two or three months ago. I was texting Luke. I was like, this is the one that if, like, if you pitched it to me and then we just like tried to write what we were imagined it to be, I think you could write a good movie out of four, honestly. Right? It's, it's so ambitious. Movie, yeah, that's what I think. Yeah. 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 That, kind of like Dorian Gray, just like, you mm-hmm. know, the age of decadence and how, you know, attempting the senses gets built into it. It was just so... Well, that combined it, with the space stuff, like making it into this like big scale... <laughs> the event thing. horizon. Yeah, the event horizon at the end. <laughs> It's also got it's also got my sweetheart from Nightmare on Elm Street too, uh, as the wife in the modern day segment. So oh yeah, uh, that's because like yeah. it goes from like 1700s to like super 90s, like it feels really uh-huh. 90s, and then to like you know super you know event horizony space. So yeah, it, with a chatterer dog, with a chatterer dog, yeah, it kind of <laughs> it goes everywhere. Uh, well, let's go back just for a moment to the Sundance screening of this film because you you go to the Sundance. Yeah. It caused I know I know it had a you know really good sale at the end of it, and it was a pretty exciting moment. I'm curious how that screened for you, and then cutting to now, which is a, about a year and a half. Is that right? Uh, later or maybe a yep. little more when it's yeah, finally yeah. being released, and and maybe just kind of you know there's obviously fears and hopes and a lot going on as this film gets put into theaters at a time where everything's still you know who God knows, but also, how else people will see that film? Do you, I don't even know if you know the release strategy post theater, but yeah, you know. I don't know if we can say anything about that. But okay. um, so yeah. yeah, so let's start with the the first screening, and then you know, and then obviously hopes we're hoping that people listen to some. It was it was a midnight screening, uh, and I yeah. know that Dave was like finishing it like that morning, <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> or like the day yeah. before. Oh, insane! Yeah, yeah. 
do you have any how it goes i've been well, talking I, a lot I, I do i'm pretty sure somebody either like i i was i was seated in the back next to the sound designer which is like a, a of note because the most of the press about that thing was about how loud it was <laughs> and and it was so so one of them got know, me ben there. one of them made me jump there was there's a sound moment <laughs> no, I mean, that got me i think i think a dude fell over i don't know if it was a guy who was working the event or if it was somebody who was like standing up for something and they were startled but i was in the back next to rick the sound designer so like when the loud sounds were happening i kept like grabbing his shoulders or like patting him on the back being like yes we did it and then at some point i heard someone like collapse on the ground which i was like this is a joke right because that was the whole thing with vhs right at sundance was that somebody passed out or something in bruckner's thing but i remember somebody fell over and I couldn't determine, like I said, if it was surprise. Oh, that, that was me. Them. Yeah, he's I, just that putting was them in every audience. <laughs> yeah. It's his thing. Oh, no, that's, I was like, William Castle Bruckner, I was like are yeah. you just fucking right. with us at this point? Like, when, I mean, he's the least, the guy who would least do that, but it genuinely felt fake. Mm. But yeah, that was my memory was like being, you know, coming out of the theater and, and just everybody kind of being like stunned because I think it was more abrasive in a way than people were expecting. And then watching it in the theater last week in New York when I was at a preview screening, seeing it in its like completely finished form i was like yeah this is yeah it was it was different it felt less it's more polished now it feels like a release movie and i think it's better than it's ever been honestly yeah they, so it's, that, certainly, that, it's that been tightened up a little bit really cool. anybody that yeah. saw it at sundance it's been sort of tweaked i do i do think the ending lands you know better than it ever has um yeah i it, i just remember when the sale was happening at Sundance, because we'd all rented a house together and it was us and the producer and, uh, and Dave. And, and so we were all like together. And I remember waking up and sort of being in the kitchen, everybody's on their cell phones and pacing. And it felt like a scene from like, like Moneyball or something where like, everybody's yeah. like, Oh God, I get, I get on the phones. Like, don't, don't say anything about the sale. And then like, Oh, the <laughs> sale leaked and somebody's posting. Like, Can we share this on Twitter? Cause Ben and I are like, <laughs> Yeah, this is huge for us, you know, yeah. and, and it's still, and it still is. And, you know, I'll, I'll cop to like, we're sort of like, you know, like it's a stock market, like checking rotten tomatoes, like everybody, well, they've added a review. Like, Oh no, it went up. It went down. Uh, Do you guys <laughs> check your own reviews? Like there's always like some people love it and some people hate it. Like it's almost kind of like, um, yeah, there's a very kind of self gratification or a self deprecation thing that goes along with it. So I think it's yeah, it's fun a- in the right context, in the right, like, like even negative re- reviews can be fun to me, but it's like, yeah, like it, I like to know what the general tone is. But I'm not terribly interested in hearing what, like, just people I don't know. If they, if I don't feel like they got the movie, then I don't really care anyway. So I'll read, like, part of it. And if I'm like, yeah, whatever. You know, it's not like, it's their opinion. It's fine, you know. But it's been fun to just to see the kind of, like, because it's the most reviewed movie we've had so far. So mm-hmm. seeing all these things come in and seeing the number change has been, like, a fun just sort of game, I think. More, more than, like, an emotional definition or validation. Just kind of enjoyable to have the experience especially during pandemic like i said where it's not a normal release movie because i think like you have to kind of let go of the whole expectation of like box office determining success it's all gone it's all it's yeah it's very surreal i don't know how movies are made anymore guys like and how how they get distributed dune is day and date i don't know anything anymore if dune is going to come out like that it's like i don't know what you're great though because 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 then it like honestly i'm hoping that the day and date thing saves dune me too because from the moment they announced it, I was like, oh, so they're going to shoot both parts at the same time, right? Nope. Because if anybody who's making, if anybody's gambling on Dune, it's that you make part of it and it's not going to work and they're not going to make the rest of it too, too expensive. So if you're making it for a subscriber model, 
you don't need box office to tell everyone in town you look like an asshole for greenlighting the Dune movie if it didn't gross enough that weekend. Right. If you can hide those numbers, if you want to make another Dune movie, then who gives a fuck what anyone else thinks? As long as you're yeah, shareholders Yeah, I could see a shorter and, window, you know, but I, I, I think not having, at the same day, I think that it's taking away some, the something special quality of what movies actually are, and it's eroding so fast. That and it's not just because I'm a theatrical purist. I love that stuff, but it really like it, it actually extends to your film. I think it'd be very easy to go. Oh well, you know, of course it's a smaller horror film, so you could see it at home. I actually think it's the opposite. I think I movies know. that are hyper focused and um, like that. I think the experience of seeing that in a place where you're completely dialed in, completely connected, because it's bigger than you. There's no argument on earth that will ever get me to go, oh, no, it's just as good on my laptop. It's I, I don't know. I watched no. this shit on my couch last night. I, 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 I cast it to my television and watched it on my couch. And there was one jump scare I'll tell you about after the show that I seriously still jumped. <laughs> and I was by myself on my couch. I'm not saying movies don't work at home. Of course they do. And TV works but, at home. Elric, I mean, like. The, the more intimate, sometimes it is better in an intimate type smaller movie. I think the thinking at the moment is, oh, we'll save theatrical for big, uh, big blockbusters. I actually can sure. watch those at home i actually no, find if no, i'm watching I, a block i watch jungle cruise with my kids yeah, at home and we I'm made like a whole it. event of it where we were like waiting for the day and everything like mm. we would never go to a premiere movie opening night but we made a huge thing over it but that said like even now i have seen just recent i watched saw at home i watched quiet place 2 at home i have not seen old yet um, because it's going to require me to put on pants. And you know, that's <laughs> yeah. a huge fucking thing right now. So that's yeah. gonna go on their poster. Well, I can see it. Oh, hang on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for night house. Oh, go to the theater. Yeah, it's just frustrating because it feels like yeah. I, and I think, you know, this older generation just needs to kind of like, you know, rewire our brains, but it feels a little bit like, oh, I finally got into the party. And I'm like, ah, I finally get the the belt the uh, the bouncer just let me in. He moved that rope. I'm in the club and like everybody just laughed. Like it's like yeah. our first <laughs> theatrical movie and it's gonna be opening wide and it's gonna be this huge thing. We sold it to Searchlight and they're gonna put this advertising behind it. And then it's like, yeah, nobody's going to the theater right now, but like no <laughs> that theatrical yeah, experience. That, I mean, that- that is definitely a bummer, but I think I, I want to, because, because it is like, yeah, I mean, I think we, we grew up like imagining, you know, exactly this and it is changing now. And I, right. and I while I completely agree with you, Elric, and I and specifically about smaller, like the, the it's, it's like, you want the smallest movies in a way and the biggest movies to be on the big screen, because I think that, you know, things that are made that way, but also you find something out about something by seeing it presented in a way it was not meant to be. Mm-hmm. That said, certain content does dictate people's level of interest given the venue and the whole the entire time and i think like you know luke we talked about this a lot like just you and i and then you and me and dave and you and me and dave and keith and on you know down the line up until the sundance purchase which is does this movie play better at home or in the theaters and i think that i think that like it's not called the night theater I mean, yeah. let's be real. That's true. You won no, me over with that. Because, I mean, even on the scare level, it's like you go see a movie in the theater that's set in a house like yours. Mm-hmm. You come home. Now, is it more effective to come home into that or is it more effective to be sitting in the venue, see, right? I like, always... But at the same time, if it's like something sexual or intimate in a way that people are uncomfortable with on the big screen, because like, or you were at that Gaspar Noé uh, loves screening at the was, was it the standard downtown like we saw it in 3d right? oh no i wasn't at that I, I was at the angst with you with the gaspar noe one. Oh, that was yeah, it yeah, yeah. yeah but like yeah i saw gaspar noe's love in 3d projected 
and the big screen. I mean, I'll never have that experience ever. Oh, I, I think sexual stuff's the most mind-blowing. Me and, me and Becca just saw uh, some, giallos, uh, some giallos at the Nubev that were, you know, incredibly sexual. And, I, and and it actually, it was so normal for a second. And then I had to, I stopped and went, whoa, we are sitting with yeah. 200 people watching. Eric and, and he's like, you don't see people have sex on screen. <laughs> anymore. And like eight foot tall no. and 30 feet wide anymore. Yeah, the novelty so of cool, that is know. a novelty for like, for the people of us who were like kind of prepared to have that novelty. But like, I was talking to somebody I can't remember who it was not that long ago that was talking about how like like love became a super popular movie obviously on streaming platforms because that's the kind of thing you know whether that's 12 year old kids that (laughs) I think it was about generating each other yeah but But, no but it also probably is people who were curious but wouldn't want to go out on a date to see that movie and I think that there is so there's there's a lot of aspects to the conversation both from a business perspective and from an audience Mm -hmm. perspective so to both Becca and, and Elric's points I think there's something real to that that like Nighthouse is a movie that I, I've never been 100% certain what the better place for it yeah. was. I've watched it at home, I don't know, half a dozen times. I've watched it in the theater twice now. It's, I think it's great in both settings. I'm glad it's getting theatrical. I hope people go. But at the same time, you know, in the near future, it will be available at home. And if you're afraid for, you know, COVID stuff or if you just like watching movies at home, I think it's going to work really, really well yeah, there too. Honestly, I, I think I think we try to think about that because you know you'd be cutting yourself off at the knees if you had a movie. You're like, guys, it's only going to work on the big screen, yeah, and like, that's well, not the case. No, sorry. I think Becca's right about creepiness. Like I remember watching Paranormal Activity two yeah. at home and finding it actually a movie I probably would have kind of not taken that seriously in a theater. Watching it at home, mm-hmm. it unnerved me because it's all about the home. So I think Nighthouse actually could be very scary at home, but I like the focus of the theater, and I think that's an exciting. Me too. For me, I don't get scared in the theater. Like I will have my momentary, like, holy shit, that's, that's scary. But then, you know, in, in 90 minutes, I'm going to emerge and tell Elric, we're going to go over to Pink Fairy. And that's like, (laughs) you jump a lot, even in, I do, I am, I am a jump. I am a jumper. That is true. But that's more shock. That's more shock. I I, I am definitely, I am reactive, um, jump scare. Like Elric's just, I also tend to, like, I remember there was a moment in, um, underwater where I literally screamed shit out loud, um, in the theater. (laughs) We can't undercut that because it's. And like, even though I know it, anytime this comes up, I look, it's a nuanced thing. Everyone, and everyone can think whatever they want. There's no right answer. I'm just, it, the empathy machine is you're more dialed into it when you're in a darkened room with a, th- yeah. with a screen yeah. much larger than you, right? Um, but I love, I love the reaction of people. I don't, of course, I don't want to send next people on phones or spoilers, but there is something so interesting. I, I'd say Nighthouse is a really good example. The humor is, I didn't know. I'm sure I would have laughed at the school scene Mm -hmm. for sure, but to hear everyone laugh and then that one laugh will give permission for the next five things. If they're borderline. Yeah. I I was surprised how some of the stuff, especially the later scenes, which aren't, they are funny and, and and the character is being funny, but like the, it's, it's, it's also getting pretty dark, you know, and, and, but people and, laugh at darkness. It's, it's exactly. how we talk, right? So, yeah. so I, I think say, permission yeah. is interesting in that theater. I was with a theater. I don't find my kind of how the fear resonates in me to be sustainable. Mm. I will forget it as soon as I emerge and I'm like, I need Pink Berry. Mm. Um, or let's go swing by <laughs> blank on the, the roller coaster. The I can, I can, it's yeah. gone. Whereas last night I watched it. I was home alone with my kids. They were already in bed. I put on this dark movie about this woman in this creepy house. And yeah. I took it, like, I finished the movie and it went to bed with me. Like, I was still thinking exactly. about it That's as what I was saying. falling asleep. I think asleep. there is something to that. Yeah, I did. I, did. I watched Black Coat's Daughter alone. My, like, my wife went up to, to bed. And so, like, I, I don't, I'm pretty case-hardened with all, all this stuff. 
But uh, just watching that More alone <laughs> by myself <laughs> at, at night and then like having to walk up the stairs and go to bed. Uh, yeah, it was. Yeah. Which is a similar yeah, that kind was, of that was scary. A similar yeah. emotional grief infused kind of nightmarish uh ideas. i i was gonna ask you guys that kind of stuff about which movies ha- has anything in recent years still gotten to you in that way because i know obviously we all see a lot and it's hard to get overly moved it's easy to get a jump scare or, or something but to walk away from something that really got under your skin i'm curious that's, if you guys had one oh god that's, that's a really good i question. wish you had asked like i wish you'd told us this before you know, we got on so i could sit like for I, I know it's her- that kind of film. It's the kind of movie that you walked well, out of going, oh, Hereditary. Yeah, Hereditary. Hereditary got me. No, sorry, but not for the horror at all, just right. the family stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just yeah, literally no, like, I, I was watching that movie in the theater by myself, and I was like, and I was like, man, this is such a fucked up horror movie. And then it, like, you know, when the, I guess I'm supposed to spoil a movie that's been out for four years, but like when the horror stuff happens in the last 20 minutes, it's like, Oh yeah, it's a horror movie. Yeah, like, yeah. I literally. Like, oh, you know what? You know what? Got. Uh, I mean, I I will always go to the mat for and just worship at the altar of Annihilation. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Seeing yeah. Annihilation in the theater, actually, and the, yeah. the found footage sequence of Annihilation with the you know I, again I don't want to spoil a, a movie that's been out for several years, but but the uh, the intestines uh, and the found footage sequence and the music, uh, I was viscerally like. Uh, clenching, you know, like my body was, gets, was tightened up. And of course the bear, uh, the annihilation. It gets bear. more fucked up. I find that movie. Cause I've, I've been throwing it on recently, just mm-hmm. kind of like, even just in parts or like it. And every time I watch even five minutes of annihilation, I'm kind of more engaged with it in that level of like, it's, it's really bleak and disturbing in like an interesting way that I think, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe just people had different expectations or something. If you haven't watched that movie again, I would recommend it. And, oh, and even even was... devs to some extent. Yeah, uh, yeah. The, the, yeah keep devs is good. That. It's good. Devs, devs, devs it's was the first like big pandemic show that like kept me going for the beginning of it, and really, really. Luke and I were texting each other every week. It was like Lost was back. It was so funny. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think for oh, me, it probably is like under the skin or something. Because that also is dark sci-fi. It has some some feeling. It's the yeah. mood that you can't wish away it's less about the narrative and the and the story at a certain point it's the feeling it's the atmosphere that's being kind of drained and you're pulled along with it so that one unnerved me but i saw that one in a weird like mall like setting i was the only one in the theater and it was like pretty overwhelming in that way you know there was something on twitter where we were talking about annihilation when we did the live show at midsummer last weekend and Mm -hmm. somebody messaged us on twitter and was like if you love annihilation you absolutely have to watch this movie immediately and now I have to go back through Twitter and see what it was. Not the one oh, yeah, t- tell me what that is. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I immediately really I was like, well, now I'm in, you said it's like annihilation. I'm completely in. So I have to go back and see what it was, but whatever it was, it's, mm-hmm. I mean, I, if it, if it's anything, but, but stalker, as I mean, like that, that stalker would be, we, is we, pretty we, close. I mean, yeah, that feels, no, but, but which by the way, like that was, that actually kind of like, I didn't even, I watched annihilation, not even thinking about that. And somebody was mm-hmm. like, yeah, it's basically stalker. And I was like, Oh yeah, it I guess it is. It's like it's a really good example of how different a vibe can be. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for sure. <laughs> um, well, I yeah, no, I I, I love one thing about the film as we I, I, kind of wrapping is I love this idea of somebody. Run, the way we run to horror, you know, we're all rushed to to scare ourselves. You have a, this character rushing mm-hmm. towards wanting something, and I think that's what <laughs> sets it apart. I think it's. I think. I mean, the changeling has a little bit of that kind of grief horror, where the, but he's more like curious. This is this is somebody willing to dive in. And I think that makes for a really interesting protagonist and a really interesting, uh, you know, for me, that's, I mean, that's, that's you know, yeah. that's very, yeah. I'm glad to hear you say that. Cause it's very much to, mm-hmm. to me what it was always about in some ways, you know, we talked about 
you know, you know, half jokingly, you sort of we, we had the discussion of like, oh, it's like a romantic version of the entity, um, mm-hmm. which which it, which it is, but also just the idea of being seduced by dark thoughts in the middle of the night, you know, waking up yeah. in your house and it doesn't feel like your house and you have that moment of existential dread and kind of, you know, like a loose tooth. Once you start poking at that sensation of nihilism, it becomes very hard to not keep poking at it. Mm. Uh, it's something that you do want to surrender to and give yourself over to. And you almost start to become, you know, you can fall in love with the idea of these dark thoughts. Uh, and, and so the idea of a character that is rushing towards them in a, in a self-destructive way uh, is scary. And that's what scares well, me. It, uh, and it was foundational, I think, to the movie, both in terms of the character, but I think probably to your very, very first question, like the recognition that we had a character that, could motivate something on her own without ha- us having to constantly introduce artificial external things that tell her what she should be doing. You know, it's like you need to feel if you're going to make a movie about one, you know, person in a house that they have a compelling reason to do things. And I think it like it was tricky to find that, that you know that balance to make it work. It's not that she's like armed, so she's like you know confident that she can fight. You know, you have to find an emotional yeah. reason for the, the, char- the character's out. agency is a threat, and yeah. and to and to you know the J horror vibes of like you know how you know J horror. I, I love I love movies like Phantasm where we like tape yeah. two shotguns together and like go to fight mm-hmm. the evil. But there's something you know that's very scary about you know the Grudge where it's like you're fucked. Like you went to that house, you're dead. Like there's nothing you can do. You can't fight these things that's true you know uh, yeah like or like, like pulse or something mm-hmm. like yoshi kurosawa mm-hmm. kind of stuff mm-hmm. as well it's just like i think i think we were definitely in that in in yeah pulling from that stuff having agency but de- like depowering yeah. your ability to because uh, you know the themes that we're dealing with you can't you can't conquer it you can't cure it no. you can't yeah. exercise the demon and win well uh, and i think mm-hmm. it's a good i mean as to trap i think it's a really interesting movie to come out of the pandemic i'm always fascinated like cause pig, <laughs> pig had a similar thing without ruining any of pig where i've got um, there's, a, there's no. a certain catharsis yeah, coming out of isolation and i think with this one uh this what she has to do in this film i think is what all of us have been doing for a year and a half which is facing ourselves our truths trying to figure yeah. out how we cope with some of this shit that we've that we built up and it's a very difficult process and i think this is a movie that does that but as a horror film that's also entertaining funny and actually really scary <laughs> so uh you know it's hard to hard to always do all that um and it's not just because we like you guys <laughs> well thank, thank you guys you. so yeah, much you. for joining yeah. us tonight um, yeah. this is we're thrilled actually, to do it honestly yeah, like this, yeah it's yeah Always a pleasure. I listen to the old show. It's always a dream to oh, be yeah. able to to talk to you know, guys. It's still surreal. It's it so still feels special. To people on a podcast. It's it's like a different version of being starstruck. It's the audio <laughs> version. It's it's great. It's like a familiarity that you're suddenly like faced with in reality. It's Aww. it's always a pleasure, honestly. Uh, well, I can't also, wait. Luke appears a lot on our Patreon show because I always talk about movies I've seen with <laughs> yeah. the of the spooky kind. <laughs> no, wait, like Luke, you are the reason I currently have. Hold on, what is this file sitting on my desktop? Gakadama, the demon. I don't Ooh, know. He, right? he's, to, he's because that, I, that one I don't know. So it must be another one. But we have been watching quite a few. Uh, I'm intrigued by it. But now you got to find that one. Gakadama, the demon within. It's okay. Japanese. Okay. Um, I don't know how I got this. Somebody sent it to me. Oh, and the I found the tweet. Um, the one that is supposed to be similar tonally to Annihilation that was recommended is called Gaia. It's brand new. Um, oh, I did hear about that. That played at the Lamley uh, by me. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's on Amazon uh, Gaia, okay. right now. You have to buy it, but I'm I did in. see the image. Yeah, so that's cool. Yeah, okay. we'll, 
Let's do yeah, this next know. in a week from now. We'll reconvene here. <laughs> yeah. We'll shoot the shit about a movie. And uh, no, I'm very excited for you guys. Like like you said, we love Super Dark Times, and I think this is such a natural extension. Even though it's, you know there's some different creatives, of course, but I think uh, for a horror film, it's a, it's a great bold swing. So yeah. congrats, thank you. Guys. thank you, thank you, thank yeah. you guys so much for joining us tonight. To our listeners at home, please also check out our Patreon show, Deep Cuts, where we get weird. And I believe we will be with uh, releasing our show from midsummer screen that we did with Jonah Ray last weekend there early. Yeah, we'll do it a couple um, so weeks early. Yeah. It'll hit a couple weeks early. That show, I've gotten so many compliments on how funny we were, um, which is not a compliment I get often. So I'm like, oh. I'm owning that shit. Yeah. Um, I think jo- they're Jonah, just talking about Jonah. It comes out of him pretty nice. We just keep up. Funny so, guy. So yeah. So you can listen to my um, hour-long love letter to Ghost of Mars. And uh, yeah, it's not. It's Wait, not. Where's that? Um, that does sound funny. Yeah, we're <laughs> we're we all actually, now, Becca. We're all no, we actually, Elric and I do talk about whether or not we believe in aliens and realized it's the very first time we have ever, we talk about whether or not we believe in ghosts all the time, but we've never gone like, you know, what do you believe? Do you who's, believe? Who's I Mulder and who's Scully? Exactly. Yeah. I'm definitely exactly what you would think. Scully. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly how you would think it would I, roll. You know, for a minute, I thought it'd be- I think she's an alien, for Christ's sake. That's not <laughs> Elric is a walking belie- conspiracy theory believer, oh, and I'm very I'm much like. I'm a skeptic, like but I want to believe in everything. I'm a skeptic I who want, wants to believe in everything. I'm one step away from wanting I want wanting the everything. scientific backing with academic validation and peer review, or else I'm completely out. So, yeah. This is why she <laughs> needs outlines for writing. And so, <laughs> yeah, so it all makes sense. Yeah. Now. Yeah. You know, you're either spiritual or not. I get it. It's cool. All right. Well, we'll see you guys at a movie or something. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, guys. In theaters right now. The Colors of the Dark podcast is a Fangoria production. Producers and co-hosts are Rebecca McKendry and Elric Kane. Executive producers are Tara Ainsley and Abby Gould. Associate producer is Jessica Soth of Amir. Sonic branding by Michael Rodriguez. And, of course, our amazing sound engineer, Ernie Hurtado. Hurtado.